You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. That is to classic literature what pro cornhole is to sports. I'm Megan. I hit the hole. Every time? Every time. Nice. I'm RJ. <laughs> and today we're... Hitting really, the hole. Yeah, we are, we're, we're hitting that hole. We're, we're leaning into our, our mostly dead authors because we got another live one. I don't know why we're leaning into dead people. No, though. no. It's the, it's the mostly part because yeah. we keep doing peeps who still got blood pumping through their veins. And have then, you looked at a picture of them though? No, actually I have not. Crypt Keeper. Yeah? So a why might be a stretch. I see. But we're putting the cart before the horse here. So not only is this author still alive, the book was published less than 20 years ago. <laughs> but people seem pretty well convinced that it is a modern classic and it is already being assigned in schools and stuff. And stuff. And stuff. So it counts. Today, I, yeah. I had to read it before my first cornhole tournament. Get you in that right mindset. <laughs> yeah, they say it's very instructive. We're talking about Ian McEwen's Atonement. Yay. <laughs> you have to bite it. You have to bite it. That's what's important here. You know, yeah. when you're faced with a cornhole, you got to give it a little nibble. <laughs> There's one thing we want you to take away from this episode. It's that you have to bite it, which if you're not familiar with either the novel Atonement or the movie Atonement, it's just going to sound really fucking weird. That's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it is exactly what it sounds like, actually. So this is an interesting book because, I mean, obviously we spoil every book that we talk about. That's that's kind of the thing that we do as a Sparknotes imitator. But the, the ending, the, the spoilers within Atonement are particularly polarizing. In fact, when I mentioned on Twitter that I was reading the book, people talked about how, oh yeah, it's just so gorgeously written, it's so beautiful, and when I got to the end, I fucking threw the book against the wall. Multiple people said that. So there, there are a lot of polarizing feelings about Atonement, including feelings in this very room as we record this. So, on that note, RJ... Did you have to read Atonement for school? No. But did you read it for pleasure? I did. There you go. Look at that. He read a book. Even after I saw the movie. So you saw the movie first and then you read the book. Yes. See, I also saw the movie when it came out in... 2007. Yeah. So I was like 17 or 18 and... I got mad at it, and I did, that didn't make me want to read the book. It's the same reason why I've never seen The Sixth Sense, because I know the twist already, so like... There's a twist? Y- yes. What's the twist? <laughs> the, the twist is that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Well, not the whole time. Y- yeah, the yeah. whole time. Not the whole time. Yes, the whole time. The- so yeah, I saw the movie... I knew what the twist was. It gave me zero desire to read the book, so I actually didn't read it up until reading it for this episode. Why did you want to read the book after watching that? I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was the best movie of the year at the time. Then you saw There Will Be Blood? Yeah, then I was torn. I was unsure. 
I was definitely against uh, No Country for Old Men winning. That one I was sure of. But now, as I'm older, much tighter. Because now I enjoy No Country for Old Men. Yeah, because you're an old man. And there's no country for you. <laughs> you love that stupid bit at the end where Tommy Lee Jones is like, I had this dream. I was with my dad. Then I woke up. <laughs> and I woke up. But before we can get into atonement and what it is that makes it so div- divisive? Divisive? Either way. Divisive and divisive. Let's learn about the author, RJ. Sir Ian Russell McEwen, born June 21st, 1948, and still living as of me speaking this sentence. (laughs) Who knows what could happen between now and then. He shall not be confused with Sir Ian McKellen. You see, they're both very different. Yes. Even though they're both British, knighted, born in the first half of the 20th century, are white, outspoken about their political beliefs, are married, and are cultural icons, only one was listed as the 19th most influential British person in the world, according to the Telegraph, and the other has portrayed Magneto on celluloid a number of times. One of them's also gay. Let's talk about Ian, not Ian. The influential one, not the other one who wears the metal helmet. (laughs) Even though I believe his name is pronounced Ian McEwen, I think it's more fun to pronounce it Ian McEwen. Sure, butcher him. I say butcher a man's name the whole time, but it wouldn't be the first. I don't know why I'm rushing to his defense in particular. So yeah, Ian McGeehan is supposedly the 19th most influential Brit. This puts him right around J.K. Rowling, David Attenborough, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and of course, Simon Cowell. Ian McGeehan was born in Aldershot, Hampshire, to David and Rose. David was a Scotsman who joined the army and became a major. Rose was a stay-at-home parent. Given Daddy McKeon's role in the military, the McKeon family moved around quite a bit up until Little Ian's adolescent years. The McKeon spent notable time in Singapore, Germany, and Libya. When Little Ian was a teen, four guys named John, George, Ringo, and Steve formed a band called the VW Beatles. And I think in part, due to the hysteria of it, Little Ian demanded the family move back to England to take part in the hullabaloo. Who among us can resist the siren song of Beatlemania? Also Steve... Steve. Yeah. John, George, Ringo, and Steve. Now, I cannot prove any of this, but... That's never stopped you before. (laughs) I'd like to believe it. Be that as it may, the family did move to Suffolk, where little Ian finished high school. Little Ian became Big Ian McIan and attended the University of Sussex, where he is listed as their number one notable alumni, where he also managed to receive a degree in English literature at the age of 22. Next up was the University of East Anglia. We've talked about that before, because I remember you having a hard time with that. You said it with the exact East Anglia. I don't remember which Ono Lit class alum came from East Anglia. I feel like this was a recent thing, though. Uh, He graduated there with a master's in fine arts. Sadly, there he is listed as the eighth most notable alumni. Oh, shucks. Not even the top five. You can't win them all, McIan. Maybe if you were the king of Tonga or became a billionaire, you'd move up in the rankings. Like your contemporaries did. Fuck, who was it who went there? I don't know. They weren't in the top eight before. Because I think you made a joke about the King of Tonga that time, too. <laughs> he is their number one most notable alumnus. All right, listeners, you can tweet at us, remind us, because we suck at this. So McKeon's first publication came out when he was 25 years old. When I was 25 years old. Oh, let's not finish that one right now. What? 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 Anyway, early in his career, McKeon was referred to as Ian Macabre. His stuff was dark, sometimes sexy, 
sometimes sexy and dark. Ooh. Let's start with the dark. Here's a summary of The Cement Garden, and I quote here. The father of four children dies. The children's mother dies as well. In order to avoid being taken into foster care, the children hide their mother's death from the outside world by encasing her corpse in cement in the cellar. The children then attempt to live on their own. The story is told from the point of view of a 14-year-old. Huh. So it's kind of like if you mixed, like, the boxcar children with a rose for Emily. (laughs) A bit, yes. (laughs) I'd read it. And then there is solid geometry. This was actually slated to be one of the first of McKeon's pieces to be adapted by the BBC for television back in 1979, but was nixed because it was just too damned raunchy. Ooh. Basically, this dude finds his great-great-grandfather's secret diaries. In them, his uncle is obsessed with finding, quote, a plane without a surface. This is a mythical geometric surface. Kind of like Missing No in Pokemon Red and Blue. In the diaries, the great-great-grandfather... This sounds so sexy already. Oh, wait, wait, here we go. In the diaries, the great-great-grandfather mentions the 17 sexual intercourse positions that exist. And only 17. There are no others. The narrator and his wife try all 17. They dabble in origami in between orgasms and voila! A white, bright light emerges and the mythical surface is found. No joke, that's the tale. What? And this is the one of the most influential men in England, huh? Uh, this was finally adapted in 2002 and stars Ewan McGregor, and I would presume his butt. But if wait, got, wait, wait, wait! This is a thing we could go watch now. What the fuck are we doing here? I want. Wait, who does he? Who does he have 17 sex positions with before unlocking the hidden geometry? And it comes from her womb. Oh, Spoilers. Jeez, dark, dark Karma Sutra, show me the forbidden geometry. <laughs> I did not write her name down, so I'm assuming it wasn't... Uh, Anyone we know. The hero, let's see. I've never heard of this. Oh my god. That's not even a story! Ruth Millar. Oh, Peter Capaldi's in it. I don't know who that is. That's one of the Doctor Who's. He's a, do- he's a Doctor Who'sman. It's only 24 minutes, so you can... Oh, it's a short. Okay, well, yeah, that doesn't... <laughs> I mean, it come... doesn't sound like it could sustain a whole film. That's fair. <laughs> Sounds like a fucking Darren Aronofsky thing. We gotta fuck to unlock the hidden math. Solid geometry. Now, <laughs> while these stories maybe helped McGeehan gain a new nickname and limited notoriety, it wasn't much more than that. So he went back to the well. Weird, sexy Lifetime movies were off the table. What do the masses really love? Well, children's stories, which he published. But also anything about war. Yep. Especially against the Nazis or the Ruskies. I mean, that's a guaranteed hitmaker literally to this day. And holy fucking shit, (laughs) did this guy strike gold talking about the age of Nazism? Well, I mean, 1930s and 40s Nazism. We might need to specify that in the future, I guess. Yeah, that, that's a thing we have to do now. As opposed to, you know, the Nazism of today. We live in a hell world. But yeah, war equals dollar bills. That's how I wrote it down here. <laughs> he also took a swing at sci-fi writing with Enduring Love, published in 1997. The book won the Man Booker Prize, which is awarded each year for the best original novel written in the English language and published in the United Kingdom. It's a very specific award, it sounds It is. So even if it's published in the United Kingdom, if it's not written in English, fuck you! The book was adapted into a movie under the same name in 2004 and stars Daniel Craig and Reese Ivins. 
One has got a craggy face, one's got a face that's kind of melting a little. <laughs> Apparently the movie's very bad. Ah. McKeon also took the time to dabble in some politics. As Americans might know in 2019, if there's anything we know about British politics, is that British <laughs> politics are fucked. I mean, it's not like we can say much better, but yeah, they fucked. Oh, British politics might even be more fucked than American politics. That's a bold claim. Although I was I was talking with friend of the show and previous guest on our Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe episode, Scottish Matt Johnston, and he, he agrees. British politics be fucked. <laughs> Interestingly, McKeon had supporters and enemies on both sides of the British political aisle. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. While he does not find anything inherently wrong with religion, or follow religion himself, he has said that extremism and dogma is problematic. In particular, he spoke out against Islamic extremists, which caught him some trouble because people claimed he was being bigoted towards Muslims. He said of the controversy, I quote, Christianity were equally absurd, and that he didn't like these medieval visions of the world according to which God is coming to save the faithful and to damn the others. And then he added, I grew up in a Muslim country, Libya, and have only warm memories of a dignified, tolerant, and hospitable Islamic culture. I was referring in my interview to a tiny minority who preach violent jihad, who incite hatred and violence against infidels, apostates, Jews, and homosexuals, who, in their speeches and on their websites, speak passionately against free thought, pluralism, democracy, unveiled women, who will tolerate no other interpretation of Islam but their own, and have vilified Sufism and other strands of Islam as apostate, who have murdered, among others, fellow Muslims by the thousands in the marketplaces of Iraq, Algeria, and the Sudan. Some people still complained about his comments, because that's what people do. It's true. I mean, no matter what you say, pe- peeps go and complain. He, at times, has also been an outspoken critic against Israel and its policies and settlements in Gaza. Upon winning the Jerusalem Prize, he went to Israel to accept the award. Many detractors complained, stating he should not have gone. He retorted, If you didn't go to countries whose foreign policy or domestic policy is screwed up, You'd never get out of bed. Okay, to be fair, that's a good quote. That's a, yeah, well, it's a cynical one, but it's a solid one. <laughs> he took the opportunity while in Israel before the Israeli president and the mayor of Jerusalem to speak in favor of Israel's existence, security, and freedoms, while also strongly attacking Hamas, Israel's policy in Gaza, and the expansion of Israeli settlements in the occupied territories. Bold move. I know, this, this dude treads a fine line. Sometime later, Stephen Hawking, famed Ironsides, boycotted... (laughs) Old Ironsides. Famed Ironsides. (laughs) He's not the original. No. Anyway, so uh, famed Ironsides, Stephen Hawking, boycotted a conference in Israel. McKeon said of what he believed to be a short-sighted boycott, that while there are governments we might detest, the, quote, Israel-Palestine has become sort of a tribunal and a touchstone for a certain portion of the intellectual classes. I say this in the context of thinking it is profoundly wrong of the Israeli government not to be pursuing more actively and positively and creatively a solution with the Palestinians. That's why I think one wants to go to these places to make the point. Turning away will not produce any result. Okay, yeah, that's an argument against isolationism, sure. I mean, intervention also historically has his problems, but... So yeah, this dude's just like really riding the middle very hard. Christopher Hitchens, if you know who he is, dedicated his book, God is Not Great to McKeon. If you don't know Hitchens, well, <laughs> you don't know Hitchens, who's another one of these British political commentators who definitely navigated both sides of many thorny issues. So yes, 
you, you pick up why this McKeon character has enemies and friends from all over. <laughs> and if you don't know Christopher Hitchens, read some Hitchens. It's entertaining. So I was going to say, or don't read some Hitchens. Hey, I teach Hitchens to my students. A yeah, very, very short piece. <laughs> it would have to be. I it's mean, about his cancer. Ah. Uh, In between all of this, McKeon produced screenplays, a stage play, children books, and hell, even a musical for good measure. I don't think little Ian McKeon ever overcame the obvious teasing he must have received for being little Ian McKeon. Again, I cannot prove this, but it makes sense to me. So therefore, it must be so. He also managed to marry two different people. His first wife was Penny Allen, and then he married Anna Lena McAfee. You say that like two different people. <laughs> That's amazing. As if we haven't had people with like who's gone through like four marriages, or people like Alexander Dumas who just was just constantly fucking. Yeah, but this guy was busy though, man. Screenplay, stage play, children books, musicals. That's true, and he, he found time for two, novels, two marriages, kinky novels, dark novels, war novels. How do you think the wives felt about the really kinky novels? Well, do, you think, do you think Ian McEwen fuck, like, fucks, fucks weird? I'm going to let you in on uh, how he reviews one of his, his first marriage in one sentence. <laughs> he, he reviews the marriage. Okay. <laughs> so McKeon met his first wife when both were in college and she was still married oh. and had two children from that marriage. Years after their divorce, he said of her, My first wife was very new age. I tried to accommodate it. <laughs> I'm going to let that quote speak for itself. Just let it sit there. He met a second wife when she was assigned to do a biographical piece on him for the Financial Times. I guess those interviews got sexy. So when he was 54, McKeon learned that he had a long lost brother who was 60, who was given up for adoption before little Ian was even born. You see, the two had the same parents, but... When mom McKeon was pregnant with the older brother, she was still married to another man. This seems to happen a lot. Yeah, not their actual father. So she kind of got rid of the older brother. Then her first husband died, freeing her up to marry the father of both her children. That sucks a lot. Yeah. Actually, what else sucks? I kind of left it out. The first wife and McKeon got into like this horrible legal dispute over custody of the kids that they had. Mm-hmm. And... McGeehan wound up winning the full custody, but she would start showing up to his events, like when he had books and stuff, to like ask him questions like, why won't you let me in my children's life and stuff like that? And so he got restraining orders against her and they were always granted, but she would keep showing up or she would send other people to like ask those kinds of questions. Oh, geez. It got real ugly. That's a mess. So all this brings us to the focus of this episode, Atonement, published in 2001. It is listed as one of Time Magazine's 100 best novels written in English since 1923. Again, very arbitrary. Yeah, why Why then? Like, that's the cutoff date. Well, I believe that's uh, considered modernity. Ah. This list is not numbered, but I like to think we all know what number it is in our hearts. 69, because it's nice. Nice. Not everyone was a fan, however. Another author accused McKeon of plagiarizing her work, an autobiography covering her stint as a wartime nurse. McKeon proclaimed innocence as he actually credited the author and her book in Atonement's acknowledgments. And actually, a number of authors came to McKeon's defense and told the other author to get bent. These authors include John Updike, Thomas Pinchon, who came out of his shell to back McKeon. Wow. If nothing else speaks to this guy's, like, immense uh, popularity and renown, if you get Thomas Pynchon to climb out of his hole in your defense, you must be a big fucking deal. Because, like, who else does he come out for? The Simpsons? 
Yep. There you go. You got the Simpsons joke in for me. I did it. And two other notable authors are Ono Class alumnus, Margaret Atwood, and Kazuro Ishiguro. And now I turn this ship over to Megan to bring us home and to atone for all of our sins. That would take some time. Time that we don't have because we got a lot to unpack here with atonement. So there's a lot going on in this book. It is a writerly book with a capital W, which is not just saying that the way it's written, it both talks about the act of writing within the story itself and that one of the characters is a writer, but also on a meta textual level, which is in part something that only becomes apparent at the end of the story because this book fucking tricks you, so I'll, I'll save that nugget of analysis for the end. But yeah, there's some pretentious stuff on there about, like, what writing is, and, like, the idea of, like, writing as truth, and what is the real truth, and that kind of stuff. But mostly, this book is about that usual good, good literature stuff. Like, you know, issues that would be easily resolved if people just fucking talked to each other, as well as war. And uncompromising Britishness. Sup, nerds? It's Megan. No, you know what? That was too aggressive. You know, I, I just I went right for it, and I immediately didn't feel good about it. And that vibrating sound that you you hear is. Uh, a new sweet tiny baby and soon to be America's sweetheart, Special Agent Cooper, our new kitten, who normally will, won't stop screaming, but of course, now that I've put her in front of the microphone, has, has gone all gun shy and is just vibrating gently. I think we mentioned her late, later on in the episode also, <laughs> because, and you could hear Pravi vibrating gently. Just a lot of gentle vibrations going on here at Ono oh Lit Class. I'm just, uh, I'm just busting in here like you usual because busted makes me feel good. Jesus Christ. I'm busting in here because it does feel good for me to tell you that this show is brought to you largely by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons, including our newest member, Case, and returning member, certainly Cheryl. She's certainly back, and we certainly appreciate it. We appreciate you too, Case. We appreciate all of them. All 66 of you, which is like fucking wild and awesome. <gasps> she made a baby noise. Yeah, just little baby noises from a little baby. She's so small. There are videos of her on our Twitter. Okay, okay, yeah. Oh, now we're getting screamy. <laughs> this week's pod pal is Cooper. And her tiny, tiny screams. Yeah? So that's all for now. Let's get back to atoning. Let's atone for some shit. Cooper, do you have dark and terrible secrets to atone for? Inconclusive. And so, the novel. As it is written. Or is it? Before we get to the story proper, we have an epigraph that's a paragraph from the Jane Austen novel Northanger Abbey, which I have not read, but after reading up on to figure out why it's here at the front of the book, I definitely need to. So Northanger Abbey is uh, like a satire of the sort of Jane Eyre-ish style gothic literature, where the main character reads too much spooky gothic stories and starts to think that she's in one and that there are like crazy murder plots happening everywhere, and there's not. And she's eventually shamed for being a dummy who can't tell fantasy from reality, which will start to sound familiar to you as we go from here, or will sound familiar if you're already 
and know the story. But while Northanger Abbey is a comedy where the main character's false suspicions mostly just make her look silly, Atonement is like, okay, but what if we did that and then explored the ramifications of taking it to its logical conclusion where it ruins people's lives? Does that sound fun? I think that sounds fun because I'm Ian Macabre. I agree. Anyway, we truly begin in England. Somewhere. I don't know, off in the country or whatever. Who cares? 1935, with a description of 13-year-old Bryony Tallis, who is a dangerous mix of precocious and naive. She's very orderly and wishes that the messy world would conform to her sense of order and how things should be. But also she recognizes that, like, she's kind of boring and she wants to keep, like, fun secrets. And this is all why she writes stories. She can keep this sort of orderly world where she is God and, you know, make whatever she wants and also be, like, in charge in the center of attention. She's just a cocktail of bad things waiting to happen, but also just such a 13-year-old. So just now, however, she's dabbling in plays and has written a real banger called The Trials of Arabella to be performed on the night her adult older brother Leon comes to visit, which is one day away, so, like, that's pretty ambitious. Equally ambitious is Bryony's goal of getting together her cast, namely her three cousins who have literally just arrived on this day, the day before Leon's coming, because their mother has run away with some dude and their parents are getting a divorce. These cousins are 15-year-old Lola and 9-year-old twins Jackson and... Piro. Piro? Piro? Like, like, like Inspector Piro? Yeah. <laughs> They're dealing with a lot right now. What with having just been dumped in a strange house with a family they only kind of know to stay with for an indeterminate amount of time while their parents' marriage disintegrates, and Bryony, with the amount of self-awareness and empathy you would, in all fairness, expect from a 13-year-old, is all like, Hi, yes, welcome to my house. You are all my actors. Play rehearsal time is now. The show is tomorrow. Get your shit together and try to act like professionals. Suck it up. Use it. Use it. <laughs> use it. <laughs> Only to get all sulky when her older sister Cecilia, fresh out of lady college with a literature degree and a chain-smoking habit, gets in the way of perfectly good rehearsal time, trying to be friendly and show the kids around the house and take them swimming. Eventually, she corrals her cousins and immediately loses control of the production due to being intimidated by Lola and her confidence and burgeoning puberty-ness. They call her Lola. <laughs> No, that's not how the song goes. No. That's Copacabana. That is the Copacabana. <laughs> hey, call her Loba. <laughs> she da, was a showgirl. For more on the Copacabana, listen to our episode on Ernest Hemingway. Trust me, just do it. How's the Loba song go? I don't know what song you're talking about. What's the song about Loba? I thought that was the song about Lola. I met her in a club down in Old Soho. Where you could drink champagne and it just tastes like Coca-Cola. C-O-L-A. Oh, Lola. yeah, Coca-Cola. Da-da-da-da-lola. Da, there you yeah, go. Yeah, okay, da, okay. Da-da-da-lola. Yeah, who, not the Copacabana. Who is that? The Kinks. Because uh, what, what do you play after the Kinks? You play Copacabana. <laughs> In the interest of disclosure, if you hear purring right now... It's my it's, penis. It's, it's RJ's penis. It's also a sweet baby boy... And mascot of Uno Liklas. Profi's in here because he needs to feel special for a while because we have a new kitten baby in the house and he's adjusting. Anyway, no one wants to be doing this. And by the end of the rehearsal, that includes Bryony. But she's committed anyway because she has an artistic vision, gosh darn it. And also she wants to keep trying to boss Lola around. From here, we exit Bryony's perspective and follow Cecilia around for a while. Oh, sorry, I didn't really say this before, but this is written in free, indirect discourse style of narration, which is something we talk about in our Pride and Prejudice episode. 
I love you most awkwardly, and is stylistically very similar in a way that I have to assume is on purpose to Austin, since he's referencing her in the beginning anyway. As a refresher, free and direct discourse is when the narration is in third person, but also freely jumps between outside descriptions and the character's thoughts, feelings, and general consciousness. You just get to hop around in people's heads, but you also get descriptions of things happening sort of outside their uh, purview. Anyway, right now, Cecilia's consciousness mostly wants a cigarette, but before she can do that, she's got to fill a vase with some flowers to put in a room for the guest that's coming with her brother Leon because her mom said so. She takes forever to do this out of spite and instead thinks about how she spent her summer smoking, reading, and just kind of feeling antsy. She wants to leave and join the world and get experiences, but, like, something's holding her back. She doesn't know what it is. She tries to think that it's because, like, her family needs her, but that's not true. It's almost like it's a hot dick. Either way, she needs to put some water in this fancy vase uh, belonging to her uncle, and instead of filling it up at a sink or something like a person does, she goes out to the fountain, because between that, a pool, a pond, and a man-made mini island, this house is like 75% water features. Just like the earth. <laughs> sure. No, you're going to disagree? No, but it's just... I've played enough sin to know. <laughs> and there she sees Robbie Turner. Cecilia feels some kind of way about Robbie. What kind of way? She's not sure. But mostly bad. The same way she felt about Will Turner. Confusing bad. No, no. Her feelings for Will Turner were much simpler. Um, Robbie is the son of one of their maids, and the two were best friends as kids, and then he revealed himself to be very smart, and so Cecilia's dad sponsored his education, and he also went to college where she constantly avoided him, and now it's all weird, and Cecilia does not know how to process these feelings that eagle-eyed readers will recognize as suppressed English horniness, and that the awkwardness she feels when they're together is sexual tension. She overcomes these feelings through the power of her nicotine addiction and bums a cigarette off Robbie. So you think she has an oral fixation? She was in that Freud movie, huh? Oh, she got spanked. Yeah. We've seen a lot of Kira Knightley movies because reasons, and the reasons are that she's beautiful and a good actress. Now, here's the thing about Star Wars. Oh, shut up. She yes, in she's it. in it. You've, me- you've mentioned this on the show already. We've had this conversation. I hate you. Alright, so uh, they make awkward small talk. Neither seem to realize that they're just desperately trying to flirt because you know what? Sometimes it be that way. Sometimes people are just so stupid. Robbie tries to help her put water in the vase. Cecilia does not want him to help her put water in the vase. They tussle a little and the vase breaks and a chunk of it falls in the fountain. Is this a metaphor <laughs> for having sex the first time? Put it in my vase. Put it... Oh, you nope, broke nope, it. No, no, not the vase. No. Oh, clunk. One and dry. <laughs> Robbie starts to unbutton his shirt and go after it, but he's too slow. And Cecilia strips down in record time, dives in, rescues the piece, redresses, and stomps away like, that'll teach him, and, and somehow still fails to recognize that she clearly wants to take the sex train to fuck town. English people in novels, man, like, I swear to God. Just no idea. Back in Bryony's brain, rehearsals are going terribly because, shockingly, two nine-year-olds who can't act in a 15-year-old who has zero interest does not a play make. They wander away and leave Bryony alone to stare at her hand for a while and ponder whether or not people have interior lives and consciousness that is just important to them as hers is to her. Which is real fucking obnoxious, but like, kind of a 13-year-old thing to be doing. Hmm, do other people exist beyond how they impact me and my life? I'm a human, Hmm. and everyone else are NPC robots. That's basically what she's kind of grappling with, which... I don't know, she feels a touch old for that. Like, yes, show me a 13-year-old who doesn't think that their drama is, like, the center of the fucking world. I still think that. And I'm way older than 13, I think. 
Sometimes I'm not sure. All right, robot. Yeah, I'll uh, plug you in. I'll give you the good juice. Mmm, the good juice. Although eventually she does decide, like, yeah, probably. But before she can extrapolate this revelation that other people are in fact people any further, she's distracted by a scene outside the window. Specifically, the scene we just went through with Cecilia and Robbie. She's not sure what the hell is happening as she watches Cecilia get undressed and jump in the fountain while Robbie shouts something she can't hear. But she can tell this is something complicated and adult. And wouldn't it be neat to like write a story that examined not just her perspective of the scene, but also Cecilia and Robbie's to capture the concept that she's just figuring out regarding the complexity of other people's minds. And there's a quote I want to read here because it is immensely, frustratingly ironic that she figures this out now and then proceeds to double back and forget it completely in favor of being like, no, no, my perspective is the only one that matters. It wasn't only wickedness and scheming that made people unhappy, it was confusion and misunderstanding. Above all, it was the failure to grasp the simple truth that other people are as real as you. Confusion and misunderstanding. Do you think the cat thinks we're real people? I think he thinks we're weird cats. So, well, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get to why this is just... The cat? Uh, no, we're not going to get to the cat. In the meantime, she's cranky to Cecilia about how the play has all gone wrong. Not just with her actor problems, but also that she's had the realization that it's actually a very childish and simplistic story now that she is an adult who has seen adult things. She can't really convey this to Cecilia, though, and ends up running off, while Cecilia thinks that life was a lot easier when Bryony was just a little kid and could be more easily comforted. Just then, long-awaited Leon and his friend Paul Marshall arrive. We learn that Cecilia and Leon have always been very close, and that Paul Marshall owns a chocolate factory and has a stupid face. That's a fun thing that, like, multiple characters references is the fact that his face is not necessarily ugly, but just kind of bad and stupid. In the film version, who's he portrayed by? Benedict Cumberbatch. No. <laughs> it's good casting. He talks about chocolate for a really long time, while Leon and Cecilia make faces at each other behind his back. Why did Leon even bring him? They're biffles. But Leon's making fun of him the whole time he's talking. It's like our relationship. I hate you. Speaking of things Leon did, he tells Cecilia that he also invited Robbie to the dinner party they're having tonight, and she's super upset and is like, disinvite him. And Leon's like, why? And Cecilia doesn't have an answer because she doesn't know how to articulate, I'm mad that I don't understand that I want to bone him. And as you may be getting a sense of at this point, failure of communication is a significant theme to this novel. Then we get a section that's kind of weird, because while it's still in third person, it's the only one that's not specifically in a character's head. We're mostly just hanging out with the cousins after Bryony abandons them, and they mill about, like, eh, what do we do now? The answer to that question is, get predatored on by Paul Marshall, who passes by their room, which is right by the guest room he's staying in. Oh, fancy to see you here. Paul, a stranger, offers them some chocolate, like, Hello, children I don't know. Would you like some candy? It's for soldiers in the military, so there's a special seal, and you have to bite it. And it's called ammo. It is called ammo. I'm not reading into it. The book is very clearly showing us that this is a pervert pedophile man, and he sees 15-year-old Lola and is like, Bite my chocolate, and the reader is just stuck being complicit in this deeply uncomfortable situation. Like... Oh, no. Oh, and he's like, I love those pants. He does say he loves those pants. And she's like, oh, I got them after seeing a play. And it was Hamlet. And she's lying because she wants to be sophisticated. And he's like, mm, yes, Hamlet. And then it's like, he didn't. He had never seen Hamlet either. But he remembered to be or not to be. And they both go, mm. mm. mm and yes. 
Lying. <laughs> then we get a chapter with Emily, Bryony and Cecilia and Leon's mom, that's about how she has migraines all the time and thinks Cecilia having a degree in smoking cigarettes means she'll never get married, and how she loves Bryony and is sad that she's growing older and won't need her anymore. While this has no bearing whatsoever on the plot, it's one of the chapters you're going to want to keep in mind for later when we discuss the kick in the face that Ian McEwan chooses to end this book with. Then we catch up with Robbie, hanging out at home and thinking about almost nude Cecilia and wishing he wasn't so awkward because she apparently is not picking up on the fact that he's desperately in love with her, even after he does things like give her a cigarette and break a family heirloom. And walks around with a tent in his pants. <laughs> this is the winter of Robbie's discount tent. Yeah, because those pants be cheap because he's poor. <laughs> He tries to write a letter asking her to forgive him and implying that he's acting like a ding-dong because he likes her, when in a fit of repressed, horny energy, he adds something dirty and unseemly. He says that he just all the time dreams of kissing what Hamlet, speaking of Hamlet, would refer to as her country matters. Shakespeare, always classy. He says the word cunt, okay? There, jeez, it's it's such an angry sounding word, like cunt. C-U-N-T. <laughs> so he's all like, you know, I said a naughty word, can you even imagine? And puts it down and writes a perfectly polite and boring letter instead. He gets dressed for the party, puts the letter in an envelope, and heads out to the Talus household. He's feeling good. He may be poor, but he's a young man with a college degree who's gonna go to medical school and make something of himself and help people and also possibly have sex with Cecilia at some point. And then he sees Bryony, the gangly, wide-eyed agent of his destruction. He hands her the letter and asks her to deliver it to Cecilia so she'll have the chance to read it before she sees him. Bryony runs off to complete this task, and as she does, Robbie has a horrible flash of insight. That's like when you send an email to your professor and you attach the wrong assignment and you didn't realize it until after you hit send. Except in this version, instead of the wrong essay, it's a note that says you dream about doing things to your professor's swimsuit area. <laughs> and somehow, Robbie managed to grab the cunt letter without noticing. Now what was it he wanted to do that cunt? Yeah, he wanted to kiss it. What's the line, He man? wanted to kiss it real good. Yeah? Yeah. Sweet. Uh, what? <laughs> I don't like it. And Bryony's already run out of earshot and Robbie wants to die. We rejoin Cecilia trying on different dresses because she wants to look sexy in a very specific way that's definitely not for Robbie. She puts on a bold, backless green dress that looks amazing on Kira Knightley. And, uh, Even better on me. It's true, you know? I, I wasn't sure you'd fill it out, but you looked great. And hangs out with Leon until Bryony appears and delivers the note. Cecilia reads it, and instead of being scandalized and horrified, she's like, Wait, I'm into this. I'm into Robbie. Holy shit. Once she's had that revelation, she has another. The envelope was already open. She keeps asking if Bryony read the letter, but Bryony makes a big show about being excited to see Leon and ducks the question. We then hop immediately to Bryony because of course she read the note. She's a nosy little sister. Like, she was never not gonna read it. Come on. And we get a fun bit where she thinks about how she's never seen this exciting new dirty word. And no one's ever said it around her or explained what it means, but somehow just looking at it, she knows. And also, like, coupled with what everyone down at the fountain earlier, must mean that Robbie is some kind of sex maniac. Uh, it specifically says that she could not forgive Robbie his disgusting mind. So even, it's not even that he's like a pervert. It's what, what, Robbie, this guy that I've known my whole life who I have just given like stories and stuff to, who I thought was just there to, you know, appreciate me like all my other puppet people, has internal thoughts and wants and desires, and they're horny? 
It's a lot. And so she's determined now to protect her sister from him. Although, how, how she's going to do that, I don't fucking know. She goes back to her room and finds Lola crying with bruises and rug burns on her arms. And she says the twins did it. And Bryony has a brief moment of like, that seems implausible. But it is very quickly drowned out by her glee at being able to comfort Lola and therefore assert her dominance because teenagers. To cheer Lola up, she, ser- she's sh- she shares by the seashore. She shares the secret of the note, and Lola agrees that Robbie is definitely a dangerous pervert. She ships and she sits <laughs> all day, all day, all day long. She ships and shares. So she says that they should deliver the letter to the police, and even Brian is like, "Okay, wait, I don't know about all that though." At least until they get called down to dinner, and she walks past the library where she hears strange sounds. <laughs> Oh, no, oh, I don't, I would not want to investigate that further. <laughs> oh, shit, I was trying to think of the song from Pirates of the Caribbean. Dead Men Tell No Tales? Yeah, that's what she hears. Yo, ho, yo, ho, Pirate's Life for Me. Yeah, no, like the Michael Bolden one. Oh, this is the tale of Captain Next Sparrow. Yeah. Pirates so brave. He gets in that cunt. Seas. With his he tongue. gets in that cunt. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> It's his favorite sea, the mm. eighth sea. Um, in the la- Treasure Island, we determined that the eighth sea was space, not vagina. <laughs> oh, hang on. What's even blacker than space? I, I don't know. Deep inside the pink folds. Ah, well, you just said pink, so... Well, you gotta get between them. V- vagina, <laughs> the final frontier. Yeah, anatomy lesson here, kids. No, no, we are not... That's not... We're Ono Lit class, not Ono Sex Ed. So this is the clitoral hood. At this point, we may as well be Ono Sex Ed. Now, this is the labia. Now, here's what's important. Yes. Oh, you want me to go on? Well, I mean, you can't just... You can't just stop there. Do tell, what is important? If you're going to go past those, you got to be gentle. Yeah. Don't go in dry. No. That was the mistake we heard earlier. Yes. With the vase. Don't do so that. So now those kids, those rascally kids, they learned their lesson. He's going in wet. So she opens the door. She walks in on Robbie. Wait, which door? The actual door or the silken folds? She opens the library door. You goddamn pervert. And walks in on Robbie and Cecilia. Yeah, you use your fingers to flip through the pages. Yep. They're raw-dogged in the library like some dirty college students. And she freaks out because she doesn't understand what she's seeing. She's 13. The internet doesn't exist. She doesn't know what sex looks like. And Cecilia and Robbie try to help explain the situation by disentangling themselves and then leaving the room without saying a word. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) Why? I get it. Your little sister just saw you having sex with someone else she's known her whole life. It's awkward. But maybe say something. Even if it's bullshit, like, Robbie wasn't hurting me. We were practicing because we're performing in a play. Isn't that like the go-to idiot child lie for this situation? Could have done that. But they didn't. They, they, they just don't say anything. They just leave. They leave her to try and process whatever that was and come to her own conclusions in conjunction with the dirty note that they both know she read. Yeah, come all right. Jesus, use your words. They both have degrees in words, and neither of them says a damn thing. Their blood wasn't in their head at that moment. Oh, you're not wrong there. Nope, they all head to dinner and pretend like everything's normal. Talk about how hot it is and such. Robbie notices there's a long scratch on Paul's face, but he's way more interested in recalling meeting Cecilia in the library to apologize for the dirty letter with the naughty word, only to discover that apparently he should have mentioned her cunt way sooner, as this would have helped speed things along. And they bone down, as previously mentioned. Cecilia is scared of Bryony spilling the beans and distracts everyone by being like, hey, what, what happened to Lola's arms? And Paul, super unsuspiciously, 
jumps in and answers for her, saying that it was her brother's and adding that he got the scratch on his face trying to break up the fight. Again, we have a second where the characters are so close to realizing that something is fishy, maybe, when Bryony suddenly realizes that the twins are gone and that they've left behind a letter that says they're running away. Everyone splits off to search for them, and more importantly, Cecilia pairs off with Leon, and Paul and Robbie each go off alone, with no potential corroborating witnesses. Then we hang out with Mom a bit more, who does not go looking for the twins, but sits at the table and spaces out for a while. Really, she, she just zones out and thinks about how Lola reminds her of her irritating and overly dramatic sister, Lola's mom. She thinks about how her husband is cheating on her, but she doesn't care, and hey, maybe Cecilia will marry this Paul Marshall guy. <laughs> then Leon comes in and is like, uh, we, we need to call the cops. In order to find out why, we go back to Bryony wandering around in the dark, thinking about how exciting it is that all these very adult things are happening all around her. And before too long, a very adult thing is happening right in front of her. And for the second time today, she walks in on some sex, except this time it is extremely non-consensual and bad. There are two shadows. One cries out and is revealed to be Lola, and the other much bigger shadow runs off back towards the house. Lola, having just been fucking raped, is in a state of shock, muttering how her attacker came up behind her and covered her eyes, and Bryony asserts that she saw who it was. And she and Lola play this weird game of, like, you say it first kind of thing, where Bryony's like, I saw it! You saw him? Did you see? Who was it? I saw it! Until she's finally just like, it was Robbie, wasn't it? And Lola's like, what was it? And Bryony's like, yeah, it was! Wasn't it? And Lola's like, sure? And Bryony decides that, yeah, no, she definitely saw Robbie for sure. And she tells this to her family, and then the police, several times over, and when Robbie finally returns, having found the twins, who everyone else just kind of forgot about, he is promptly arrested. Throw him in the clink. Bryony admits to herself to not being 100% sure that she saw Robbie, but she knows at this point she's in way too deep, and will get in trouble if she suddenly voices doubts, and, you know, after all, the dude's a sex maniac! Like, who else could it be? It all fits together so tidily. Like, the stories she spends her time writing, hint, hint. And then... Smash cut to World War II France! What's that? You thought this was a tragic drawing room drama? Now it's a war novel! Remember when Brian you was sad she couldn't perform her play? Now there's a child's leg in a tree! Enjoy the next 250 pages about the horrors of war! Fooled you! Is war horrific? I haven't been myself, personally. <laughs> I think it's generally knowledge that is pretty bad. No, like, New York bad? I've been to some of the outer boroughs. It's pretty scary <laughs> there. Christ. You ever seen a child's leg in a tree? I don't know. I've been to some neighborhoods where the house's median values were below $100,000. Yeah, that's basically the same thing. All right. It's four years later, and Robbie is a soldier in France, lost in the countryside with two other soldiers, a wound that's starting to fester, and some letters from Cecilia in his pocket that are the only thing driving him forward through the hellscape of warfare and a desperate attempt to get to Dunkirk, where British forces are staging a retreat. We learn that while Wabi 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 We learned that while Wabi was in prison for a few and a half years, he and Cecilia wrote each other constantly, and that she disavowed her family after he was arrested, cutting ties completely and moving to London, where she trained as a nurse. They write and write for years, because evil sex demons aren't allowed female visitors in prison. And finally he gets out and into the army, where they write even more letters, and then, finally, again, he gets a day off from army training, and they meet in person at a cafe. Even though they've been writing so much, having to say mouth words to each other in person for the first time since he was dragged away by the police is understandably really hard, and they don't get far. Especially when Cecilia's lunch break is only a half hour long. But they share a kiss and make plans to spend Robbie's two weeks of leave having hot cottage sex by the sea. 
These plans are most inconveniently derailed by World War II. Just rude. And Robbie is shipped overseas. Before the war starts in earnest, they exchange a few more letters, and Cecilia mentions that Bryony has written to her, saying that she too has left the family to become a nurse, and also kind of realizes that she did a fucked up thing, and is willing to reverse her testimony. This gives Robbie hope through what is a bloody, fevered, and honestly amazingly written, as everyone keeps saying, mad dash through a nightmare as Robbie and his two compatriots, Mace and Nettle, manage to avoid death from bombs, strafing planes, and commanding officers trying to make them go back and fight some more, all while witnessing all the manner of human tragedy. Robbie's wound keeps bothering him more, but he just keeps holding Cecilia's letters in his pocket and trying to block out everything else, reducing himself to one forward step after another, one step closer to getting back home. He can't let himself care about anything else, and even considers ditching Mace and Nettle a couple times, because, I mean, they're kind of annoying, but they, it's a bad move, because actually they help keep him safe several times. And then, while this is happening, he thinks back to this incident with Briny when she was 11, where he was teaching her how to swim, and she was like, If I was drowning, would you save me? And he's like, yeah, of course I would. You're basically my little sister. And she's like, okay! And then she pitches her ass into the water, and he's like, what the fuck? And he jumps in and saves her, and he pulls her out, and she's just like, you did it! You saved me! And he's like, what the fuck? And she's like, I love you! And he's like, you're an idiot, and you're 11. And he thinks that maybe this is why she framed him for pedophile rape. <laughs> but either way, they eventually reach the beaches of Dunkirk and find no boats home, but about a bazillion other soldiers also waiting for boats. Everyone is miserable and either getting drunk or trying to find enough alcohol to get drunk. And at one point, Robbie and Nettle chase a pig to get food and water from a French lady. Robbie becomes delirious and hallucinates and eventually goes to sleep in a basement crowded with other soldiers as Nettle tells him he's heard that the ships are supposed to come the next day. Woof. It's, it's a lot. It is. And I bet you're wondering what happens to Robbie and if he'll make it home. I mean, I guess. Robbie. Oh, Robbie. Oh, Robbie. Oh, Robbie gonna be away? Well, you know what? Too bad. It's Briony O'Clock. It's 1940, and Briony is 18 and training as a nurse in the same hospital Cecilia did a few years back, and that hospital is getting ready to receive a whole lot of wounded British soldiers, although she doesn't know that yet. Emotionally or physically? Both. She just knows that her job is to clean things, mostly bedpans, and also never tell her patients her first name, because that was a a very big nurse no-no, apparently. There is no (laughs) Briony. There is only Talus and avoid getting scolded by the head nurse, Sister Drummond. If you think Bryony's scrubbing out bedpans is her attempt to clean herself of all the guilt she feels, well, then you'd be right. It's not a very subtle metaphor. (laughs) But in the meantime, she keeps writing, and even hears back from a magazine she sent a manuscript to called Three Figures by a Fountain. Hmm. Who's the third? Well... The in, in the vicinity of the fountain. <laughs> they tell her that the writing is pretty good, but that nothing really happens in the story, and there needs to be some action. They're like, hmm, this little sister character, wouldn't it be interesting if she interfered with her older sister's relationship after witnessing the scene at the fountain and misinterpreting it? Why not explore where that could go? Hmm? Hmm. And you would think that the magazine editor's hilariously prescient notes would be enough to make Bryony maybe stop trying to turn bullshit she did and people she did the bullshit to into stories, but you'd think wrong. But we'll get there. Bryony works hard and speaks only superficially to her family, writing letters to Cecilia's last known address that she got from the hospital about how she realizes five years later that she did a bad thing, but receives no reply. But there's no time to dwell on that because we need to get back to the horrors of war! As Bryony and the other nurses scramble to help treat the influx of soldiers who have been wounded in a variety of viscerally upsetting ways. 
from all over burns to multiple amputations to a sweet French boy named Luke who is missing most of his skull. Since Bryony speaks French, Sister Drummond tasks her with keeping Luke company in what Bryony does not at first realize are his final moments. He asks her her name and she says Talis, because rules, but then he also thinks he remembers her and talks about her spending time in his mom's bakery and that they will be married. He asks if she loves him and she says yes and tells him her name is Bryony and then he dies and then I put the book down and cry for a little bit because I forgot that part of the movie because I saw it 11 years ago. After all the carnage of the hospital, Bryony is given a day off where she walks through London and people are panicking about being bombed and potentially invaded. She recalls getting a letter from her father that Lola and Paul are to be married. Yikes. Lola. Do, 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 do. Nope, nope. She goes to the wedding. You know, the one between a rapist and the woman he raped when she was 15, mostly out of a morbid sort of curiosity. She thinks about how all three of them are complicit in a terrible lie and spends what is, quite frankly, an uncomfortable amount of time talking about how Lola doesn't really look like a victim. And wasn't she such a drama queen and wanted to be an adult so bad? And man, Bryony lying really worked out for her, huh? Marrying the rich chocolate man. And it's kind of hard to delineate how much of that is Bryony thinking that and how much is McEwen getting really problematic because it's presented sort of outside of Bryony, if that makes sense. Like, actual Lola character traits? I don't know. It's weird. It's there enough to make you kind of be like, mm, I don't know about that. Either way, they get married, and this motivates Bryony to follow through with her second stop, which she almost keeps wimping out of, all the way up until she's there, at the apartment that Cecilia is supposedly living at. The landlady answers the door and confirms that Cecilia Tallis does in fact live here, and yells for her to come down. Cecilia appears and is at first dumbstruck at the sight of Bryony and probably would have turned her away, but then her rude-ass landlady's like, hey, coming or going, what's going on? And uh, she basically brings Bryony inside to spite the landlady, to be like, fuck you. They go up to Cecilia's rooms and Bryony is super uncomfortable and yeah, well, this is what you get. Can't say I sympathize all that much, Bryony. And neither does Cecilia, who responds to Bryony's statement of, I'm not asking you to forgive me with, oh, don't worry, I won't. Just sick burn. And tells Bryony that it doesn't matter that she suddenly feels like telling the truth. She went and saw a lawyer and learned that it's not good enough for a retrial. And anyway, all it does is show that she's an unreliable witness. So, you know, too little, too late. And then, who should come out of the bedroom? Paul Marshall. No! He's fucking them all. That would be really confusing and weird. She just left from their wedding. I don't think he moves fast enough for that. Try yeah, again. where do you think Honeymoon is? In C's bedroom. What do you think I'm trying to get our honeymoon to be, Meg? Cecilia's bedroom in 1940? Oh, Keir Knightley's bedroom. Try again. Who comes out of the bedroom? Me. <laughs> no, this is not a fucking choose-your-own-adventure self-insert fan fiction. You do not come out of the bedroom. <laughs> I came already. It's Robbie! It's, yeah, it's Wobby! <laughs> he made it back alive from France, and although he doesn't recognize her at first, once he realizes who's standing in his kitchen, boy is he pissed. <laughs> He screams at Bryony and threatens to break her neck, and when told she's going to tell everyone the truth, is like, why the fuck did it take you so long? Why now? And Bryony can't think of a way to say, a sweet young Frenchman died in my arms, and it really gave me some perspective on life and shit. And so she stands there, while Robbie gets so angry he has a war flashback, and Cecilia kisses him to try to, like, calm him down and bring him back out of his head. And keeps kissing him. And kisses him some more until Bryony's like, hey, uh, so, should I leave? And they say, no, 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 not before we give you some instructions. Namely, make an official statement. 
write a very long, detailed letter outlining the events of the night, and most importantly, do not, under any circumstances, embellish. Brownie promises not to and leaves the lovers be, as she's done quite enough damage already. Or has she? Smash cut to 1999. That's right, 59 years later. Bryony's still kicking, and also now narrating to the reader in first person, which is weird and wildly jarring, but that's just the start of things. And somewhere in the world, specifically in Kuala Lumpur, Sean Connery is teaching Catherine Zeta-Jones <laughs> how to steal a gold mask. Well, that's where they go to do that. He teaches her in, like, Scotland or wherever the fuck his little hideout is. Fair enough. He's teaching her how to go through lasers. Hmm. <laughs> Go to those lasers, Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> Don't watch Entrapment. It's a bad movie. <laughs> so, Bryony has become a celebrated novelist and also just learned she has vascular dementia, which means she's going to have a whole bunch of tiny strokes over the next few years that will cause her to lose her memory and then die. She's not all that upset about losing her memories, though. Gee, I wonder why. Also, it's her birthday, and she's going back to her old family home, which is now a hotel for a huge party. But before that, she goes to the British War Museum to drop off some documents she used to help her write accurately about the war front in her latest novel. You know, the one you just read. That novel. She says she's tried very hard to be as truthful as possible. You know, minus like a, a small detail or two. Just just like a, a little one, you know? On the way out, by chance, she passes by Lord and Lady Marshall, still kicking at age 89 and 79 respectively. They're super wealthy, and Bryony notes that Lola looks very healthy and will definitely outlive her. So that happens. I don't know how we're supposed to feel about that. Or how we're supposed to read this scene. They got a happy ending. Is it, though? He raped her. Mm. He, he, said he assaulted her, and then he raped her. He got the real happy ending, then. Yeah, I guess he did. That, that's cool. No good deed goes unpunished. Mm. And no bad deed gets punished. <laughs> Fun world. Then we get the party, organized largely by the remaining twin, Perl. Everyone has a good time, and as a final surprise, various great grandkids and nieces and nephews and what have you perform none other than the trials of Arabella. And Bryony is like, oh no, my cringe years! But then is shocked to see Perl, who must have been planning this, crying quietly. Like, that he, you know, put this whole thing on, and he's just sort of crying as he watches. And 77-year-old Bryony can't seem to understand why he would be crying. So I'm glad that her emotional intelligence is still at about what it was when she was 13. And in case you think I'm being overly critical of old Briars, she then reveals that this book, her final book, but also her first book, because she began working on it all the way back in 1940, will not be able to be published until after the Marshalls are dead, so she'll also probably be dead too. This is because if they're alive, they'll definitely sue, because she didn't change any names or facts or important parts of the story. Except... Except? Except that she never actually went and saw her sister that day almost 60 years ago. She chickened out. So she went 59 years ago. She, she didn't go. She never went. She, she went 58 years ago. She didn't go any years ago. She uh -oh. chickened out. And then never got the chance to try again because Cecilia died shortly thereafter during one of the London bombings. Well, that's sad for Wabi. It would be. Except Robbie died from infected wounds before ever even making it back to England. That's sad for C. C died in the bombing. That's sad for Robbie. Oh, gosh. This is all sad for Leon. <laughs> it's all very sad for Leon. And think about the vase. The vase is maybe the saddest of all. 
actually the vase gets broken. There's a random conversation when when Bryony is with Cecilia that she does say that some maid or whatever broke the vase in the interim, which I guess is a metaphor. But anyway, this feels like maybe a bit of a fucking embellishment to me. But Bryony reasons that even though in earlier drafts she told the whole truth, now as an old lady she's like, what's the point though? Why deny readers, and also the ghosts of Cecilia and Robbie, a happy, hopeful ending when I could just keep lying? Because it makes a better story. She says that as a writer, she could never achieve atonement because she's the one in charge of the story and has no higher power that she can appeal to. And if she can't atone, fuck it, I guess. Here's a happy ending. Except, of course, in revealing that to the reader, she's robbed us of the happy lie that Cecilia and Robbie overcame everything life threw at them instead of dying horribly after one shitty little meeting at a cafe. So, sucks to be us. The end. And that's atonement. You, just, you read this book, and... Okay. Mm. Mm. Admittedly... A masterful transition from Austin-flavored drawing room bullshit to straight-up fucking war novel. And then the angle of the free indirect discourse is interesting when you have the knowledge that this is a novel being written by Bryony, which makes you want to go back and reread everything through the meta lens of the main character is the one writing the book because there is so much assumed about various characters' internal lives. Like, we know, I, I forgot to mention it, but that she used the letters that Robbie and Cecilia did actually send each other during the war to kind of put stuff together but like also their mom that whole scene of like hmm i don't think cecilia will ever marry hmm lola's annoying hmm i love bryony gee that's read under a different lens when you know bryony is the one writing the novel and that she could not possibly know her mother's interior thoughts maybe her mother shared it <laughs> we, then we get moments where you know we have the insight to why robbie thinks bryony did the thing like that she had the crush on him and also, we do have adult Bryony uh, saying something to a nurse at one point, like, oh yeah, I had a crush on a guy at one point, and I did like a silly thing where I fell in the water, but after I told him I loved him, the crush disappeared after a day. But we can't believe that, because Bryony fucking wrote it! There's no objective truth! And part of it is adult Bryony justifying, well, if there is no objective truth, who is to say they didn't end up together and in love and this smacks of postmodernism? Is there any objective truth anywhere? (laughs) The other thing that, like, bugs me is that in terms of, like, conceit, the fact that things change the very end and she's talking in the first person... Who's the reader supposed to be at that point? Like, if this book that you have read is meant to be Bryony's final novel, who's this confession for, or, like, meant to be read by? It's not addressed to anyone. The reader of the book. But why would she include that postscript to the book to be like, hey, I wanted to give them a happy ending, but also now I'm ruining it for you by saying the ending's not happy. If that's meant to be within, like, the meta-narrative of the story, like, an actual postscript, she's cutting herself off at the knees. Well, some people don't read the, uh... The afterword. The afterword. <laughs> I don't think so, because she also just goes about, like, detailing her day and what she's doing and stuff. I don't know. I don't like it. <sighs> so let's get into the adaptation, because obviously there's the movie. It was a very big deal. It was up for, for Oscars and things. And oh, it is an Oscar-winning film. Yes. And the, the movie also adds, like, another kind of interesting meta layer because Bryony talks about the fact that stories are, are better than plays, she decides, because it's so much easier to convey the internal knowledge of someone where in plays you have to sort of say everything out loud. And it's like, oh, now there's a movie about the thing, about the, you know, and that sort of recursive thing. But I'm going to let RJ tell his story about the Atonement movie. When I was 25. 
Oh, oh, this was the thing that you didn't want to talk. So while he was 25, he was writing these things and whatnot. And when you were 25... No, that's not true. Uh, I was younger than 25. Oh, well, yeah, that's... Yeah, you would have had to have been. You were 25 when we met. I know. <laughs> yeah, you'll never know what happened when I was 25. Okay, no one wants to. So you were, you were you were a lad of younger than 25. It's true. What's the atonement? I remember seeing the trailer going, oh, this looks like a movie I'd watch. Couldn't get anyone to go with me. And it was like an afternoon, and it was playing in this theater that I happened to be by. Theater I never been to before since i don't think really because yeah, it was like an afternoon like i had nothing to do i'm like oh like, what's around oh there's a movie theater oh they have a tome i've been meaning to see that walk into the theater nobody's there i take a nice center seat right in the middle of the theater this could be great and then as the lights are turned down for them to start playing the attractions i hear like a bunch of chickens <laughs> and it's a bunch of blue hens walking a whole bunch of old ladies and they all kind of stumble on in and because i'm like in the middle of the theater like row wise also they surround me like on both sides in front of me behind me like i'm blocked in now by all these old ladies talking about they can't wait to see this movie they read the book and it dawns on me this is some sort of book club so the movie goes throughout the movie is a pretty faithful adaptation of the book at least with the major plot points yeah for the most part and so then you get the scene where it seems like robbie dies like oh this is sad i cry other people cry but then robbie's back on screen i don't think i had an audible reaction but there were definitely other people in the theater who like gasped oh i thought he was dead that's kind of weird if these ladies read the book oh as we know a book club not everyone always reads the book i suppose fair enough and i'm like ooh, robbie's not dead this is good for me and then we get to the end And so the key difference with how the movie handles the shift, which I think is very smart, is it frames it as Bryony being interviewed in the present day by someone being like, oh, this is your most recent novel. Tell us about it. And so she just looks into the camera and is like, well, (laughs) let me tell you a thing. I was so sad. I was so crushed and heartbroken. And the movie, the following action takes all of about two minutes in the film. So between like learning that Robbie and C both die, the credits start rolling within 45 seconds. Basically. You, you don't get a lot of time to recover from that. And so the lights start coming up and I'm sitting in the seat like, oh my God, oh my God. Most of the people in the immediate area around me apparently knew this twist was coming because they're just sitting there like, oh, this movie was great. Oh, it's just like the book, this, that, the other. And I'm sitting around... I'm sitting surrounded by these 80-year-old women, like, trying to hold it in. The single 20... What would you have been? 20... You're a 20. 22? Yeah. I think, yeah. 22-year-old man just crying to himself, surrounded on literally all sides by old women. And they don't get up to leave. They're just sitting there to talk about the movie. They've trapped you. I'm trapped. And, like, I really want to go because I'm trying to hold this in. And so I get up, like, excuse me, excuse me. And I shove my way out to my car where I finally allow myself to open a emote and ugly cry for about 10 minutes. Because they played me. They did play you. Ian McEwen fucking plays you. Like a cheap peony. I then saw the movie about two or three more times in the theater. Oh, I didn't know that. I love the movie. At that time, like I said, I thought it was the best movie of the year. Or at least on par with There Will Be Blood. I disregarded No Country for All Men. So I, was like, I didn't get it at the time. Well, yeah. Come on, brothers, be difficult. 
So I was like 17 or 18. This is not my genre of movie back then. And I think I was dragged to see it with like a friend or something. And I had a burgeoning attraction to Kira Knightley. And I honestly, like I remember getting kind of pissed off and then I forgot like 90% of it. And we rewatched it before doing this. And yeah, no, it's a beautiful, amazing movie. It's a very good adaptation of the book. It's very, it's just really well acted. Um, we were making fun of Benedict Cumberbatch a little while ago there, but like, he plays the part perfectly. He understands what a fucking creep this man is and just does it very well. <laughs> you have to bite it. <laughs> now, what's interesting between the movie and the book, so I read the book after I saw the movie because I was intrigued. The book goes into very dense details about how the characters are thinking, about their emotions. That'll take a pretty simple scene and go on and on and on yeah, about it. That's the thing. Like, the writing is lovely, but there's definitely parts of it that are very dense, not in terms of difficult to read, but in terms of, like you're saying, going on and being like, okay, we get it. Okay, can we move on? Okay. <laughs> and even though the movie is two hours and ten minutes long, which not short. No, but it doesn't feel that long. It, it's very sparse. Like, it's very lean. There's really no voiceovers, like in where the characters are explaining their thought process or anything. There's like voiceovers that kind of cut the scenes together and how it's edited. But that... It's just carried by really good fucking acting. <laughs> and, and cinematography, that the shots that they use that kind of linger, they do very well. But that the way they tell the same story are completely different in their approaches that I think they could have told it in a way that's more true to the book where you get the voiceovers, but they just decide, nope, we're going to go for a very lean movie. It works. And it still feels like a, like a faithful version. And there's the, the most amazing, probably beautiful part of the movie is when Robbie and the gang get to Dunkirk, um, get to the beach. And there's just this long tracking shot that takes you all the way up the beach. And it's, it's just really fucking good. We, we were joking because there was that movie that Christopher Nolan made a couple of years ago, Dunkirk, <laughs> yes. that in that one single tracking shot does a better job of being like, this was Dunkirk than that entire goddamn movie. <laughs> and then I just have a couple interesting notes on that. But yeah, go watch it. Even if you don't want to watch the whole movie, I'm sure that scene is on YouTube. Um, it was rehearsed over two days. It required five takes. So they had to do that shit five times. And the Steadicam operator shot the scene by riding on a small tracking vehicle, walking off to a bandstand after rounding a boat, moved to a ramp, stepped onto a rickshaw, and finally dismounted to move past the pier into a bar. So he goes on a journey. Keira Knightley also wears that beautiful green dress that we talked about, and it was declared the best of all time by InStyle magazine. Whatever the hell that means. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, apparently in the DVD commentary, you can hear director Joe Wright say that for the assault scene, he instructed Benedict Cumberbatch to leave his underwear on. And a digital butt was then added to make it appear that Cumberbatch does have his underwear down and his bare behind is showing. So that is not the true butt of Benedict Cumberbatch. It is a false digital butt. <laughs> tickled me it's just so weird they didn't want his tattoo to show up on screen <laughs> it's just an odd detail um and then also if you want a much briefer but still fairly faithful i think recap of atonement go to youtube put in socktube presents atonement you will not be disappointed <laughs> and that's about all i've got and now we come to that part in the the show that we always come to and that is hey rj i don't come to it well, maybe some of us do. Don't kink shame me. <laughs> <laughs>
Sup? Atonement. Yep, I don't do that. Good or bad? I think very good. It's tough to make me care about characters sometimes. This is true. I really, really, really hate Bryony. There's, I don't think, anyone in any cinematic universe, any literary universe, who I hate as much as Bryony. I really detest Bryony. So much so, I hated <laughs> Saoirse Ronan. Poor, poor Saoirse Ronan. Because she portrayed Bryony. She did such a good job that he literally, anytime he would see a movie, for years, when we would see a movie with Saoirse Ronan, he would be like, fuck it, Bryony. But I've forgiven her now. You didn't forgive her till like, what, Brooklyn, I think? Yeah. <laughs> because, to, to me, I think what makes me just so angry about her tale if she doesn't learn, she doesn't learn that she goes through this whole thing and in the end, she still doesn't get it. And it makes me so angry she doesn't get it. They're like, you know, tell the true story. Don't embellish. And in fact, they never even say that to her. She invented them saying that to her. And then she even goes and is like, nah, I'm gonna do it anyway. So anything that can make me feel that much must be at least okay. All right, I'll take it. If you haven't seen the movie, see the movie. Have you ever read the book? Read the book. Hey, Megan. ERJ. Atonement. Can there ever truly be? See or, or no. I mean, it's hard. It honestly. is hard. It is. It's so hard. You're, I mean, um, you're telling me I got to come to this, so <laughs> I'm doing what I can. I. You. It is a very well written book. There's no arguing that. It is gorgeously written. It tells the story fantastically. But I don't like the idea of having the rug yanked out from under me at the last second on two different levels. One, that you're rooting for these these people to make it and have a happy ending and that Bryony doesn't fucking destroy them. Then at the end you get a ha ha fooled you. But I also just on a meta level do not like stories that are like ha ha fooled you. Because I think that part of that is, you know, part of the discourse of the book. That in the end, you know, it kind of puts up like, well... Do you want to be lied to and be told the happy story where they live? You know, or do you want the truth? And it's like, well, it seems like most people are rooting for the lie, right? And we would much prefer the lie. Maybe just straight be lied to and not be told. Oh, by the way, that was a lie, not the truth. But that's just so fucking precious. That's the thing. That's so capital W writerly. And it's it, it gets on my nerves. Welcome to the post-truth 2019. <laughs> this book, I would argue, is ahead of its time, actually. There you go. In a way, it kind of is. So I'm torn between the fact that reading the book, you know, that for, for the huge chunk of the book is, is a very good experience. And just the characters feel very full and good. And even though Bryony is like the fucking worst, she, she feels like a person, you know? And maybe the story's true on Earth 42. <laughs> maybe. And I just, I don't like tricks. I don't but, like, I don't like that life of pie fucking usual suspects shit. Although at life of pie, it actually didn't bother me as much because that was more like I'm trying to cope with a horribly traumatic situation by making it more fanciful. And that uh, usual suspects, I, I didn't actually give a shit about any of the characters enough to be like, how dare? But I know a lot of people get mad because it's like, okay, well, what what the fuck was this whole thing that I just watched? I just, it's bullshit. <laughs> so I just have a hard time with that. So I say it's good in terms of the technical term of good. I think it is worth reading. And I think going in knowing the twist actually helps in a way because you're kind of more emotionally prepared. I've seen this movie close to a dozen times at this point. It still makes me cry. I still cried like a little bitch. Maybe some of you watch the movie instead, apparently. <laughs> That's all I got on that. And that'll about do it for this episode. If you like the way that we give you the pure, undistilled truth. If you want us 
to kiss your sweet, <laughs> wet cunt. Oh my god, no. No, we're not going to do that. We respect your personal boundaries. If you want to make sure that RJ never says those words again, spread the word about the show. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell the truth in a letter that you have been concealing because you ruined your sister and her lover's lives. Atone by saying, listen to this literature podcast. It's pretty funny and maybe you'll hate me less. <laughs> oh no, wait, you've died. You can also check us out on Twitter at OnaLitClassPod. Join, like us on Facebook. Join the Facebook group. Become a member of our Patreon at patreon.com slash OnaLitClass and get t-shirts, posters, and other stuff. And also get to vote on the episodes that we do next, which is very important because the next few episodes is time for the best time of the year. Halloween. Rosh Hashanah. Halloween. Perm. That's in July. Our next episode will be on October 3rd. Yom Kippur is the sad one. Yes, Yom Kippur is the sad one. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm a cunning linguist. (laughs) And this is the Quatoral Hood. (laughs) We love you. Bye. It wasn't only wickedness and scheming that made people unhappy. It was also trains. <laughs> trains. <laughs> da, da, Jupiter, something, something, something. Drops of Jupiter, that's it. Drops of Jupiter oh. taste like rain. Hey, baby, get on this train. <laughs> hey, baby, get on this train. <laughs> <laughs>